Part One of Hartman the Anarchist or the Doom of the Great City by E. Douglas Fawcett. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter One Dark Hints. All things considered, I rate October the 10th, 1920, as the most momentous day of my life. Why it should be so styled is not at once apparent. My career has not been unromantic. During many years I have rambled over the globe, courting danger wherever interest led me, and later on have splashed through shambles such as revolutions have seldom before been read with. More than once I have tripped near the cave where death lies in ambush. I am now an old man, but my memory is green and vigorous. I can look back calmly on the varied spectacle of life, and weigh each event impartially in the balance. And thus looking, I refer my most fateful experience to an hour during an afternoon conversation in my dull, dingy, severe-looking quarters in Bayswater. From romance to the commonplace is seldom a long trudge. On this occasion a quite commonplace letter determined my destiny. There was nothing of any gravity in the letter itself. It was a mere invitation to meet with some friends. Most people would stare vacantly were I to show it to them. They would stare still more vacantly were I to say that it enabled me to write this terrible story. Bear in mind, however, that a lever, insignificant in itself, switches an express train off one track on to another. In a like manner, a very insignificant letter switched me off from the tracks of an ordinary workaday mortal into those of the companion and biographer of a Nero. Some two years before the time of which I write, I had returned to London, having completed a series of adventurous travels in Africa and Southwest Asia. My foregoing career is easily briefed. Left an orphan of very tender years, I had grown up under the aegis of a bachelor uncle, one of those singularly good-hearted men who rescue humanity from the cynics. He had always treated me as his own son, had given me the advantages of a sterling education, and had finally crowned his benevolence by adopting me as his heir. An inveterate politician, he had early initiated me into the mysteries of his cult, and it is probably to his guidance that I owed much of my later enthusiasm for reform. As a youngster of twenty-three, I could not, however, be expected to abandon myself to blue books and statistics, and was, indeed, much more intent on amusement than anything else. Among my chief passions was that of travel, a pursuit which gratified both the acquired interests of culture and the natural lust of adventure. Of the raptures of the rambler, I accordingly drank my fill, forwarding, in dutiful fashion, long accounts of my tours to my indulgent relative. Altogether, I spent three or four years harvesting rich experience in this manner. I was preparing for a journey through Syria, when I received a telegram from my uncle's doctor, urging me immediately to return. Being then at Alexandria, I made all haste to comply with it, only, however, to discover the appeal too well grounded, and the goal of my journey a deathbed. I mourned for my uncle's loss sincerely, and my natural regrets were sharpened when his will was read. With the exception of a few insignificant bequests, he had transferred his entire property to me. The period of mourning over, 
i was free to indulge my whims to the utmost and might well have been regarded as full of schemes for a life of wild adventure delay however had created novel interests some papers i had published had been warmly welcomed by critics and a new world the literary and political spread itself out seductively before me further i had by this time seen many cities and men and the hydra-headed problem of civilization began to appeal to me with commanding interest the teachings also of my uncle had duly yielded their harvest and ere long i threw myself into politics with the same zeal which had carried me through the african forests and over the dreary burning sands of araby i became first a radical of my uncle's school then a labour advocate and socialist and lastly had aspired to the eminence of parliamentary candidates for stepney a word on the political situation things had been looking very black in the closing year of the last century but the pessimists of that epoch were the optimists of ours london even in the old days was a bloated unwieldy city an abode of smoke and dreariness startled from time to time by the angry murmurs of labour in nineteen twenty this colossus of cities held nigh six million souls and the social problems of the past were intensified the circle of competence was wider but beyond it stretched a restless and dreaded democracy commerce had received a sharp check after the late continental wars and the depression was severely felt that bad times were coming was the settled conviction of the middle classes and to this belief was due the coalition government that held sway during the year in which my story opens in many quarters a severe reaction had set in against liberalism and a stronger executive and repressive laws were urgently clamoured for at the opposite extreme flew the red flag and a social revolution was eagerly mooted i myself though a socialist was averse to barricades not revolution but evolution was the watchword of my section dumont has said that the only period when one can undertake great legislative reforms is that in which the public passions are calm and in which the government enjoys the greatest stability of the importance of this truth i was firmly convinced what was socialism the nationalization of land and capital of the means of production and distribution in the interests of a vast industrial army and how were the details of this vast change to be grappled with amid the throes of revolution how deliberate with streets slippery with blood the vilest passions unchained stores factories and workshops wrecked and perhaps a starving populace to conciliate what man or convention could beat out a workable constitution in the turmoil what guarantee had we against a reaction and a military saviour by all means i argued have a revolution if a revolution is both a necessary and safe prelude of reform but was it really necessary or even safe feeling ran high in this dispute many a time was i attacked for my lukewarmness of conviction by socialists but never did i hear my objections fairly met though on good terms with the advanced party as a whole i was opposed at stepney by an extremist as well as by the sitting conservative member my chances of election were poor but victorious or not i meant to battle vigorously for principle to a certain extent my perseverance bore good fruit during the last month i had been honoured with the representation of an important body 
at a forthcoming Paris convention, and was, in fact, on the eve of starting my journey. There was no immediate call for departure, but the prospect of a pleasant holiday in France proved overwhelmingly seductive. The Socialist Congress was fixed for October the 20th, and I proposed to enjoy the interval in true sybaritic fashion. Perhaps my eagerness to start was not unconnected with a tenderer subject than either rambling or politics. Happily or unhappily, however, these dispositions were about to receive sh short shrift. It was a raw, dismal afternoon. The grim, fog-robed buildings, the dripping vehicles, and the dusky pedestrians below, reminding one forcibly of the city of dreadful night. Memories of Schopenhauer and Thompson floated slowly across my mind, and the gathering shadows around seemed fraught with a gentle melancholy. Having some two hours before me, I drew my chair to the window, and abandoned myself wholly to thought. What my meditations were matters very little, but I remember being vigorously recalled to reality by a smart blow on the shoulder. "'No, Stanley, my boy, it's no use. She won't look your way.' I looked up with a laugh. A stalwart individual with a thick black beard and singularly resolute face had broken upon my solitude. This worthy, whose acquaintance we shall improve hereafter, was no other than John Burnett, journalist and agitator, a man of the most advanced revolutionary opinions, in fact, an apostle of what is generally known as anarchical communism. No law, no force, reference of all social energies to voluntary associations of individuals, were his substitutes for the all-regulating executive of the socialists. He made no secret of his intentions. He meant to wage war in every effective mode, violent or otherwise, against the existing social system. Though strongly opposed to the theories, I was not a little attached to the theorist. He talked loudly, but so far as I knew, his hands had never been stained with any actual crime. Further, he was most sincere, resolute, and unflinching. He had, moreover, once saved me from drowning, at great risk to himself, and, like so many other persons of strong character, had contracted a warm affection for his debtor. That his visits to me were always welcome, I cannot indeed say. Many rumours of revolutions and risings were in the air, and some terrible anarchist outrages reported from Berlin had made the authorities unusually wary. Burnett, in consequence, was a marked man, and his friends and acquaintances shone with a borrowed glory. Moderate as were my own views, they might conceivably be a blind, and this possibility had of late been officially recognised. It was wonderful what a visiting list I had, and still more wonderful that my callers so often chose hours when I was out. However, as they found that I was guiltless of harbouring explosives, and had no correspondence worth noting, their attentions were slowly becoming infrequent. Burnett, too, had been holding aloof of late. Indeed, I had not been treated to his propaganda for some weeks. To what was the honour of this unexpected visit due? "'Off to Paris, I hear,' he continued. "'Well, I thought I might do worse than look in. I have something to tell you, too.' "'My dear fellow,' I cried, "'you choose your time oddly.' I must leave this place in a trice. Meanwhile, however, tell me where you've been of late, and what this latest wrinkle is. I? Well, out of London. 
if you had not been rushing off at such short notice i might have spoken more to the point you can't stay a couple of days longer can you say yes and i will engage to open your eyes a bit no i fear i can't the congress is not till the twentieth but meantime i want to rest i am positively done up time enough however later on burnett laughed it is worth while sometimes to take time by the forelock look here i am bound hand and foot at present but this i will say your congresses and your socialism evolutionary revolutionary or what not are played out i think i've heard that remark before i somewhat coldly rejoined still say what you like you'll find that we hold the reins i won't say anything more of the practicability of anarchism we have talked the matter over ad nauseam but this i will say compared with us you are a handful of people politically speaking of no account and perhaps on the whole best left to the attention of the police forgive my bluntness but to my mind your crusade when not absurd appears only criminal as you like said burnett doggedly the world has had enough barking the time for biting has come restrain your eloquence for a season and i'll promise you a wonderful change of convictions what have your continental friends more wrecking in hand what idiocy is this wretched campaign it converts no one strengthens the hands of the reactionaries and what is more destroys useful capital why i say injure society thus aimlessly curse society and a heavy fist struck my writing-table i detest both society as it is and society as you hope it will be to-day the capitalist wolves and a slavish multitude to-morrow a corrupt officialism and the same slavish multitude only with new masters but about our numbers my friend you think that we must be politically impotent because we are relatively so few we count only our thousands where you tot up your millions of supporters obviously we could hardly venture to beard you after the established orthodox fashion but suppose suppose i say our people had some incalculable force behind them suppose for instance that the leaders of these few thousands came to possess some novel invention something that that made them virtual dictators to their kind and looking very hard at me he seemed to await my answer with interest suppositions of this sort are best kept for novels besides i see no scope even for such an invention it is part of the furniture of utopia but stay was not this invention the dream of that saintly dynamiter hartman also hartman now there's a typical case of genius wasted on anarchy a pretty story is that of your last martyr tries to blow up a prince and destroys an arch and an apple woman for the life of me i can't see light here all men bungle sometimes growled the revolutionist ignoring the first part of my reply hartman with the rest ten years ago was it ah he was young then but mark me my friend don't call people martyrs prematurely you think hartman went down with that vessel permits me to express a doubt well i responded it matters little to me anyhow but anarchy apart how that poor old mother of his would relish a glimpse of him if what you hint at is true he nodded and involuntarily my thoughts ran back to the days of nineteen ten when my uncle read me then a mere boy the account of hartman's outrage as hartman's first crime is notorious 
i run some risk of purveying stale news but for a younger generation it will suffice to mention the attempt of this enthusiast to blow up the german crown prince and suite when driving over westminster bridge on the occasion of their nineteen ten visit revenge for the severe measures taken against berlin anarchists was the motive but by some mischance the mine exploded just after the carriages had passed wreaking however terrible havoc in the process my sneer about the apple-woman must not be taken too seriously for though it is quite true that one such unfortunate perished yet fifty to sixty victims fell with her in the crash of a rent arch there was a terrible burst of indignation from all parts of the civilised world and the usual medley of useless arrests the real culprits hartmann and his so-called shadow michael schwartz escaping to sea in a cargo boat bound for holland the boat went down in a storm and failing further news it was believed that all on board had gone down with her hartmann was known to have possessed large funds and these also presumably lined the sea-bottom such was the official belief and most people had agreed that the official belief was the right one i should add that among hartmann's victims must in a sense be classed his mother at the time of which i am now writing she was leading a very retired but useful life in islington where she spent her days in district visiting and other charitable work she still wore deep mourning and had never so it seemed got over the shock caused by the appalling crime and early death of her son burnett knew her very well indeed though she scarcely appreciated his visits i was myself on excellent terms with the old lady but had not seen her for some weeks previous to the conversation here recorded my time running fine burnett shortly rose to go be sure he said and look me up early on your return mischief i tell you is brewing and how soon i shall have to pitch my camp elsewhere i hardly know he was moving to the door when my landlady entered with a note she had probably been listening to the conversation for she glanced rather timorously at my guest before depositing her charge wait one moment burnett and i'll see you out said i as i hastily broke the envelope yes there was no mistaking the hand the missive was really from my old friend mrs northerton its contents were fated to upset my programme only two days back i had arranged to meet the family in paris the express invitation of her husband a genial old liberal who took a lively interest in my work this arrangement now received its death-blow three carshalton terrace bayswater dear mr stanley we have just returned from paris where we had as you know intended to stay some time old mr matthews whom you will recollect died about a fortnight ago leaving the colonel one of his executors as the estate is in rather a muddled condition a good deal of my attention may be necessary so we made up our minds to forego the rest of our trip for the present i shall be at home to-morrow afternoon when we shall be delighted to see you with best wishes from all always yours sincerely maud c northerton p s lena comes in for a bequest of five thousand pound in mr matthew's will lena in london this was quite decisive excuse me burnett i said turning to my neglected friend but this letter is most important a nice business pickle i am in i can tell you 
what nicely scented notepaper your business correspondents use you have my deepest sympathies well farewell for the present don't be in a hurry i said i am afraid i must postpone this continental trip after all business is business whoever one's informants may be no i must really knock a few days off my rest burnett stared and concluded that something really serious was on hand so you will be available for two or three days longer that being so i shall expect to see you at the old place about eight o'clock to-morrow evening be sure and come for i have a guest with me of peculiar interest to both of us his name oh don't be impatient it is a fixture then all right no i can't stay good-night i laughed heartily after i had seen him out what a chequered life what curious connections were mine now a jostle with fashion now with fanatics of anarchy like burnett travelling it is said planes away social prejudices and certainly in combination with karl marx it had done so in my case many friends used to rally me about my liking for the haunts of luxury and some even went so far as to say it was of a piece with my other lukewarm doctrines the answer however was ready i hated revolution and i equally hated the pettiness of a sordid socialism we must not i contended see the graces of high life art and culture fouled by the mob but the mob elevated into a possession and appreciation of the graces it was just because i believed some approach to this ideal to be possible that i fought under the banners of my party and forwent travel and independence in the interests of the wage-slave that i was no orator puff i yearned for some opportunity to show cavillers would have then found that my money my repute and if needful my life were all alike subservient to the cause i had at heart that night however lighter visions were to beguile my thoughts when i dwelt upon once more meeting miss northerton even burnett's sombre hints lost their power to interest me and when later on i did find time to sift them they received short shrift at my hands bluster in large part no doubt was my verdict as i turned into bed that night however to-morrow i should be in a better position to judge the interview would at any rate prove interesting for burnett's anarchist friends however desperate would furnish material in plenty for a study of human nature. End of part one.